Welcome to the Go Lead Everything podcast. Do you aspire to become the best leader you can be? Then come along with me and GLE. Faith, love, integrity, courage. Four key values of great leaders all around the world. I'm Phil Swanson, and I'm on a mission to bring you leaders from all walks of life and arm you with the tools and mindset to lead effectively in whatever you are called to do. Are you ready? Because it's time to go lead everything. What is going on, everybody? Welcome to GLE. Man, today I'm so excited about my guest. He is an old friend from high school, now a fellow Texan, and that's a more recent thing, but um, we went to high school up in Michigan. He's been doing some super cool things ever since. He started his career at GE in financial management as part of their executive leadership training program, spent some time in strategy and finance, working for Facebook, learning from Zuck himself, and more recently founded JT Capital, now doing some huge things in real estate. He's grown a $500 million real estate portfolio, and I am super excited to learn from him today and share him with my GLE crew. Rohan, welcome to the show, my man. Awesome, man. Thanks a lot for having me. Yeah, it's great to catch up. So I know you learned real estate from your father, but I'd love to hear kind of the initial story of how you finally made that leap into real estate. Cause I, I know you had some fears of maybe starting a business and I know I have dealt with those fears and probably all of our listeners who may be thinking about it or even have started businesses dealt with that before they jumped in. So maybe let's start with kind of your story of real estate growing up and how'd you make that first leap? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I tell people that, you know, I kind of started in real estate when I was about seven years old, my dad had owned, you know, a few single family homes uh, right outside of Detroit. And so I would kind of, you know, tag along with him, go see what he was working on and everything like that. Um, and, you know, a lot of it was just like issues with residents uh, where he would need to like clean up after their messes and everything like that. And I would kind of just like sit in the corner and watch TV. Um, but, you know, as I kind of, you know, grew up, uh, went to high school, went to Michigan State, everything like that, I kind of had a very tracked career. So I went into finance, I worked at GE, I worked at Facebook, um, and at some point, I kind of just took a step back and said, do, do I really like what I'm doing? You know, the um, kind of path I was on uh, was fine, but really kind of I wasn't getting the fulfillment that I needed, uh, like truly out of life. And so I'd said, you know, what is something that I truly want to do? And after doing kind of a lot of self-exploration, talking with a lot of people, uh, finding out a lot of different opportunities that are out there. Uh, and luckily being in a environment where kind of risk-taking and entrepreneurship and being a founder um, was kind of encouraged, uh, I was able to kind of, you know, come across real estate as I was looking at investing in different asset classes. Um, and so I had found someone who was kind of a mentor to me. Um, and pretty much what I did is I just said yes to everything. I was able to persuade him that I uh, kind of wanted to do a mini apprenticeship for him. Um, and I just hustled and did as much work as I could to take work off of his plate uh, and pretty much free up his own time to be able to do more deals and stuff like that. Um, and so in kind of, you know, a, a brief uh, way to explain it, uh, I kind of just hustled and, and kind of got my foot in the door. And then from there, I was kind of able to, um, you know, take, a, take off a little bit uh, and happy to go into more detail and kind of take it wherever you want to. Yeah. Were you, so in high school, were you like 
going to properties or doing any of that with your dad or were you just focused on corporate track learning just doing the high school thing yeah i think you know if i think back to high school i really was not doing a whole lot i think i didn't have you know clear direction i definitely wasn't going with him to properties i was probably spending more time you know just hanging out with friends um those kinds of things um the real estate you know it took me a while um when i was at ge I was working a lot of hours, so I was focused on my own career, and I was focused on GE. And you're just in a bubble. Whatever happens at the big company, you know, that's the gossip. Uh, you always talk about those kinds of things. You never see there's even a world outside of that. So even leaving GE to go to Facebook at the time, uh, in a very funny way, was a risk to me. <laughs> but looking back on it, it was just not a risk at all. In fact, it was a better opportunity to go there. Um, and then very similarly, like when I was at Facebook, it was working a lot of hours focused on Facebook. Um, and not until I kind of like took the time to step back and reflect, did I say, um, you know, through some exploration of real estate is a good opportunity. So I probably had about, you know, let's say almost a 20 year gap. <laughs> if the first real estate experience was at seven years old, uh, and the next one was, you know, kind of in my late 20s. Yeah, I love hearing everyone's different journey, because it, it's like, you hear things when you're younger and then someday your like mindset is ready to actually use those things. And I, I think that I've been through that. I don't know if you have had a similar experience where it was like one day you kind of just were like, Oh, Hey, you know, the light bulb turned on. I should do this real estate thing. Was it like that for you? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, you know, I think when you're kind of in the heat of the moment and you are working and you're really focused on your career. And again, you're in these mini bubbles, right? Whatever kind of circle we're in, we're in these mini bubbles and whatever's happening in that environment is the most important thing of the day. You don't really take a, a time to step back and kind of like think about what else is out there. And so um, the, the light bulb went off when I realized that this tracked career is not really what I wanted to be doing anymore. Mm -hmm. And then at that point is when I kind of took the time to start looking at other things um, you know, again, kind of just being in the Bay Area, I, I had a lot of exposure to people that were doing things um, outside of Facebook, albeit most of it was in tech, but at least people were coming up with new ideas, new solutions to things. And oftentimes I was having conversations with these people and I would just think, you know, the work I'm doing actually is so boring to me <laughs> when I hear about these people creating these new ideas and these new solutions. Yeah. And maybe all I'm doing is just kind of, you know, uh, doing the financial modeling for the company, uh, maybe looking at some M&A type stuff that may not even go through. And so I kind of said, I want to do my own thing. And for me, it was really um, a couple things. One, I didn't believe I could actually build wealth working in a job. I believed I needed a significant piece of equity in a business. Uh, and then two, I wanted the actual freedom. I, I couldn't stand anymore reporting to a manager. I, I couldn't stand being like uh, forced to go to meetings that were put on my calendar. And I realized just a lot of those um, type of uh, like structured environments for mm -hmm. me uh, and kind of my outlook on life was not what I wanted to be doing. And so I knew I, I needed to leave and I just kind of crafted a, a path to get there. Did you start into real estate as a side hustle or did you leave and fully commit? So what I was doing when I first joined Facebook was I was investing passively. So um, effectively what I would do is I would just invest money with someone who was kind of actively managing 
you know, these multifamily real estate deals. Mm -hmm. Um, and I kind of learned a little bit that way. Um, merely through just like financial updates, asking questions, those kinds of things, but not enough to kind of actively manage a deal. Uh, and then what I realized was that, you know, the business model was extremely simple, which was one of the main reasons I had passively invested in it. And then I kind of looked at all kind of the different um, aspects of running a deal and managing a deal. And I kind of convinced myself that, you know, I can probably do four out of five of these decently well. And the fifth, I can just go find someone who's really good and kind of partner with them. Mm -hmm. And so um, I ultimately left and just started doing it. But it took me a little while to get there, kind of getting over those irrational fears of not, not having a steady paycheck. Obviously, having a spouse that has a steady paycheck is helpful. Uh, but even with that, it, was, it still took some time to be able to get there. But yeah, I didn't do it as a side hustle. Uh, for me, it was, you know, I need to go all in on, on doing this thing. Otherwise, I knew I wasn't going to be able to kind of fully commit and be successful. Yeah. So what do you consider your first deal? Uh, so my first deal was a, a 300 unit. Um, this is one that I had JV'd on. Um, so I was doing kind of a, a, a apprenticeship type opportunity at the time, right? I think I alluded to it earlier. Mm -hmm. um, pretty much what I did was I did all of the underwriting on the deal. I helped with, uh, you know, setting up meetings, taking notes, doing work that I hadn't done, like, until my early years of working, but you really just, I really just said yes to everything and kind of uh, was willing to do whatever it, it took, um, helping to kind of uh, manage the due diligence process, everything like that. Um, so that deal, you know, ended up being pretty good. Um, we were able to, uh, you know, raise a significant amount of equity on it. We we're able to arrange the debt financing on it. I think we closed that deal in 52 days or so. Um, and that deal is probably targeting somewhere in the range of 17% IRR as we exit it, uh, you know, either uh, late this year or early next year. Um, so that was my, my first deal and definitely a memorable experience. Uh, you know, I tell one story. It was my fault, actually, that on day one of that deal, we lost $10,000 because I did not review uh, an item in the contract, which is the personal property inventory list. And that lists out all of the items that a, uh, the previous owner needs to leave on the property. And so, you know, real estate deals sometimes are ruthless. And these guys left out all of the stuff like Wi-Fi routers, you know, computers, stuff like that. So when we showed up day one to take over, they just started taking everything away. Oh and I immediately realized the mistake I made. We had to go to Best Buy, buy like <laughs> 10 grand of equipment. Uh, it was, oh it was crazy. That's funny, man. It's a great yeah. story. So it sounds like you put a lot of value in mentorship. Was that something that you were taught growing up to really value that mentorship? Or is it something that you just figured out on your own and, and went and sought out a mentor and just ran with it? Um, yeah, I think, you know, I've always like looked up to people that um, I kind of admire what they do. Right. Um, and yeah, for me, I think, I don't know if I was really taught it growing up, but um I found like if someone has gotten to X and you're at A, they've already learned a bunch of steps. And for you to kind of like recreate everything and learn it yourself and make a bunch of mistakes doesn't really make sense. Mm -hmm. So you should just go ask them, hey, how'd you get here? And kind of like, what are all the things that I should navigate? Um, a lot of my, you know, mentor relationships have been um, very hands-on. 
where I'll go tell someone like, Hey, I want to learn this specific thing from you. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, here's all of the research I did. Here's all the upfront work I did. You know, can you help me? Um, and that has come in the form of, you know, cold emails and things like that. Um, so yeah, I, I don't know if it's an actual skill I've developed, but just something that I just said, you know, how do I reduce a bunch of the mistakes by learning from other people? Do you think a lot of your experience at GE and Facebook kind of set you up to be able to ask some of those right questions, you know, like doing that prep work before you go to the mentor, you know, I, I, it sounds like you have a, a background and a lot of detailed knowledge already. And, and so you, you knew to go, I, Hey, I need this specific thing from you. Um, is it that experience that gave you that, you know, what, right. How'd right. you, how'd you get that sort of initial knowledge? Yeah. GE was a phenomenal training experience. Um, I would like credit a lot of my just, you know, foundational understanding of, of things to GE. Um, when I came in, I was so fresh. I didn't know really how to do anything simple, like tactical things in Excel, like building a pivot table. Didn't even know like why anyone would do that. Um, I didn't really know how to communicate things to anyone. And so that experience was definitely impactful. Um, yeah, one of the takeaways was, you know, you do a bunch of prep work before you go kind of, um, you know, ask for somebody's time, right? You kind of read everything they've already written. You kind of listen to the talks that they've given. You don't just kind of go up to them and say, hey, can I pick your brain for 10 minutes, right? You kind of come to them with a specific ask. Uh, and so that gave me a lot of, um, you know, I'd say just like foundational baseline aspects of how to, to communicate with people, how to get things done, how to prepare for meetings and everything like that. Speaking of reading everything they've written, if you all aren't subscribed to Rohan's Reflections, you got to do it because I did. And he's got some great content in there. And the more recent one that I loved, he talks about taking 500,000 to 12.5 million and I was hoping you could maybe give a little insight about that one reflection and um, what you mean by how, how you can take 500,000 to 12.5 million in real estate. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So uh, the beauty of kind of commercial real estate, and then, you know, what I focus on specifically, which is uh, multifamily or kind of large apartment complexes, is that the value or the purchase price is derived based on a multiple of the cash flow or the, uh, the operating income of the property. So uh, to give an example, let's say you have a multifamily apartment complex and every month uh, you know, people are paying rent uh, on the first of the month. At the end of the year, let's say on, an, uh, on a multifamily apartment complex, you've generated $4 million of revenue. Now on that $4 million of revenue, you have a couple million dollars of expenses that are related to the property, things like repairs and maintenance, um, you know, overhead expenses, uh, payroll for the people who are working at the property, like the leasing agent, the maintenance people, um, property taxes, all of those kinds of things. Then you have a couple million dollars left over. Then you need to pay your mortgage payment every month, right? So let's say that's another kind of million dollars that you pay to your lender. Uh, all in all, you have about $1 million in cash flow left. Now that $1 million in cash flow, that's what gets distributed back to your investors. But um, if you go kind of one level up and you take that $4 million in revenue, you subtract the $2 million of property expenses, that's what's called your net operating income. So if someone, I'm going to go sell a property or I'm going to go buy a property, I'm going to look at what is the net operating income of the property and let's say it's $2 million. Now, 
the purchase price is going to be derived based on a multiple of that net operating income. So, um, you know, today, uh, in kind of today's environment, in today's market, primarily in the areas that I'm investing in, let's say Austin or Dallas, Texas, that multiple uh, is around 25x. So if you have a property that's generating a couple million dollars in revenue, that purchase price is going to be $50 million, right? Now, if I increase, let's say from $2 million to $3 million, the net operating income, because I have raised rents, because I've upgraded the property, or maybe I've cut expenses or something like that, but a combination of those two typically, but I'm raising the operating income of the property to $3 million. Quite simply, someone might say, okay, you've raised it from $2 million to $3 million. That means now the purchase price has increased from $50 million to $51 million. But that's not the way it works. Because if you think about that 25x multiple, now you're going to take three times 25x, and you've just increased the property value by to $75 million, which is a $25 million increase just from generating $1 million more uh, of earnings on the property. And so that's the beauty. Uh, and that's what I constantly stress to, you know, kind of our property management teams of, hey, a $1 saved is $25 in value at the apartment complex, or $1 additional income that we get is $25 uh, in additional value. And it's a very, um, you know, some often counterintuitive way of thinking. But ultimately, when you understand it, then you begin to realize, oh, wow, the value of a dollar is extremely powerful, especially when you're looking at the earnings multiples. Oh, yeah. And I, I want to touch on a couple things. So through our conversation thus far, I'm reminded of something that uh, Brad Lee, he has a podcast, Dropping Bombs podcast. I don't know if you know Brad, but he's got some good stuff. He, he always says the more hands you shake, the more money you make. And it's really easy to get stuck in your corporate bubble and not like go meet new people and who are doing different things. And it sounds like you, you had the opportunity to meet some, some cool people and kind of step out of that corporate bubble. And, and you end up meeting this, this mentor who introduced you to this, you know, these types of concepts that, and, and you probably knew some about them from your corporate career. Uh, already, but, you know, finding those people and, and just meeting new people, you know, I can't tell you how many people I've met through this GLE adventure that, you know, I've learned so much and, and, and feel like I've just changed over the last couple months, meeting people and reconnecting with people like yourself. But also like most people would start in single family and that's kind of the, the typical stereotypical uh, real estate journey. Even uncle G Grant Cardone himself started in single family, I think back in the day. Right. But now he's like 40 plus units, you know, minimum, or, or I can't remember what he even says now, but you know, that what you just described, I mean, that is the power of these, these large deals. And so what, what made you feel comfortable just skipping over to these larger deals? Was it just that mentorship? Was it tagging along and, and, and relying on that knowledge from your mentor or, you know, would, what are your thoughts on pursuing single family or, or small? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, I originally thought that I would do single family houses. Um, so I was like, I'm going to go to college towns. Um, I'm going to buy up kind of single family houses and kind of my investment thesis there was, uh, you know, uh, it's pretty much always packed. They got to sign 12 month leases. Um, their, their parents co-sign. Um, and, you know, I actually think college is uh, just a, uh, a, a terrible a kind of institutional system, but, uh, you I know, we don't have you. to go. 
go down there if we don't want to. But I said, you know, at least I think for maybe the next five to 10 years, uh, they're here to stay. Uh, and because of that, this will be a, a phenomenal investment opportunity. But what I realized or concluded after I brought this and kind of talked to a few people about this um, was that it takes the same amount of time and effectively effort and paperwork and diligence and all of that to close on a single family house that it does to close on a 300 unit property or a 600 unit or even a larger deal than that. And so I kind of step, took a step back and I said, okay, well then why is it such common advice to start with single family? Um, and I think there's two main reasons. One is that it is just um, the, the kind of quickest pathway of what people think, right? When anyone thinks about, hey, I'm gonna do real estate investing, they immediately think, oh, okay, I have a single family house that I rent. Um, but there's so many more asset classes out there, not just multifamily, but self-storage, retail, office, uh, in RV parks, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. The second reason is that it is um, due to their own capital constraints. So most people think, well, I got to put my own money in this, right? But they never kind of think, well, I can kind of raise money or partner with people, right? So for example, in the, in the, uh, world of Silicon Valley, you have founders that are going to, to raise money from, uh, you know, institutional venture capital or angel investors. The same thing happens in real estate, not only at the institutional level, but also at the individual level, where if someone has the right expertise, they're able to raise money from high net worth individuals, accredited investors, uh, and things like that. And so that's kind of what I realized was, oh, okay, uh, you have to have a capital raising muscle. You have to know how to raise capital. People need to be able to trust you. You have to actually have the experience and the expertise to be able to convince people that um, you know, they should trust you with their money. And then lastly, you just want to have that expertise and that experience before you're kind of managing other people's money. Um, so that's, you know, originally I was thinking about going into single family homes, then I was persuaded not to. And then that's why I pursued kind of this, apprenticeship slash mentorship, and then also JV partnerships, because I realized that um, I didn't trust myself to manage people's money if I was the only one. I needed someone who had been through, you know, multiple market cycles, understood much more than I did. Um, and so that's why I pursued that. I think for people, it really just depends on kind of what your uh, individual situation is, what your temperament is, uh, what your kind of expertise is. Um, in terms of getting started. I do believe that, you know, single families can be great for people. Um, there's about 75 million millennials right now. Not everyone can afford a house. The majority can't, in fact. And so, you know, you see these companies like Blackstone, for instance, raising nine to 10 figure funds to go build houses and rent them out. So I think it's definitely uh, an okay strategy. I think it just takes time to kind of scale up. I do think that building the foundation of doing it, but then learning how to raise capital, create partnerships, and uh, being kind of conservative as you manage people's money is the best way to kind of scale if it's something that, you know, people want to kind of build wealth through. How are you enjoying being an entrepreneur? Uh, I like it. I like it a lot. Uh, there's times though when it's extremely tough and, um, you know, you kind of think like, why am I doing this? Like this would be... <laughs> I could just go work somewhere and make good money. Um, but oftentimes, like when I uh, kind of feel that way, 
I just really just think back to kind of my Facebook days <laughs> and I realize like, okay, you don't want to be doing that. Even this worst day is kind of better. Um, and I really just like it. Like I like the things I work on, you know, typically I'm able to kind of structure my days as I want to. I'm able to um, mostly do everything that I want to be doing. There's always certain things that, you know, you kind of just have to do still. Uh, but I really enjoyed it. And for me, it's kind of just been a personal challenge um, to say, you know, when I was in Silicon Valley, I met a lot of people and I would think, you know, well, if they're doing that, I could <laughs> definitely do that. Like, I don't see the hero uh, kind of aspect here. This is just a normal guy uh, who's worth like nine or 10 figures. Right. Uh, and so for me, I had just said, you know, I feel confident enough I can do it. So a lot of it is just kind of a, a personal challenge and, you know, quite frankly, maybe even an ego thing. No, that's super cool, man. I've dealt with some of those same insecurities. And, uh, you know, I think uh, I've had those same thoughts where you're like, you know, if these people can do it, you know, I, I, I should be able to figure out how to do this. You know, it can't be it can't be that hard. But, you know, lots of businesses fail. I think, you know, having that foundational mindset and, and I think you took a wise approach of finding people that had been successful doing it because it, it would be hard to raise capital and have people trust you if you don't have any experience doing it, one, and have that track record. Um, I'm reminded of Robert Kiyosaki, who I've heard say entrepreneurs, you know, business owners aren't necessarily entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs know how to raise capital. And I thought that was an interesting comment from, from Robert that uh, entrepreneurs know how to raise capital. But I know you have a very interesting Zucks story from Facebook. I was hoping you might share, um, you shared it in one of your reflections, getting a, a 4 a.m. email from, from Zuck. And uh, I thought that was a really cool story. And uh, I was hoping you'd share it with our audience today. Yeah, sure. Happy to. So, um, you know, one of my projects when I was at Facebook was uh, kind of focusing on our trust and safety operations team. Um, so, you know, back then, um, we didn't have a lot of issues, let's say, that were kind of so widespread where we were, Facebook was at in the PR news cycle was kind of at the point where, Facebook was still um, kind of the hero to everybody. Everyone loved Facebook. No one really talked bad about it. But there were little cracks in the narrative, right? And these little cracks were kind of uh, initially being, um, you know, uh, let's say uh, kind of magnified by some of the, uh, uh, the, the journalistic institutions that had their same business models threatened by Facebook, right? And I, I think that... Um, in part because Facebook started having so many more uh, problems on their uh, platform, uh, the journalists saw this as an opportunity to kind of craft a new narrative. Um, and you, know, you can argue whether it was fair or not fair, but it's kind of besides the point. And so um, what happened was we were seeing more objectionable content on Facebook, people posting things that you know other people didn't like. These are kind of, uh, you know, very, um, let's call them not so bad things, like things like nudity that can get taken down immediately. And it's very black or white, whether this should be posted or not. Right. And then there's other things like hate speech, which you need a lot of context for. Um, the other kind of issue that was popping up was uh, with Facebook Live, people were uh, live streaming murders. Now, this isn't like millions of people doing it, but it, it was like a handful of people. And obviously with the virality of Facebook, things can happen very quickly and get a wide audience. And so it had happened once earlier in the year. And then we were kind of putting in place systems to fix it. 
we were trying to beef up that organization. I was primarily focused looking at it from a finance, strategic, and operational lens. Uh, but then uh, the kind of day before a conference uh, in Cleveland, there was a, 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 a murder live streamed. And this is before the F8 conference, which is kind of this developers conference where Zuck goes on stage. Uh, and he had to uh, start off with that story as the first thing and kind of apologizing. Uh, and he was pissed. And so he sent an email that morning, uh, kind of at 4 a.m. And he's notorious for waking up really early. Uh, and he kind of just said, like, I'm sick of this problem. Um, I'm willing to spend, I can't say the amount, I don't think, but like X numbers of dollars on it, which is a very vast figure, um, you know, 10 figures plus. And then he had said, uh, pretty much get it done. Uh, like, I don't care what you have to do. And then also I want to be seeing, uh, meeting with you guys like every few days now. And so, you know, we woke up that morning, saw the email and then pretty much for the next, like, I would say four months, we were just in a lockdown mode. Facebook is notorious uh, or famous for kind of going into these lockdowns whenever there's a huge issue or potential risk. Uh, and so this is what we did. And we we're just in kind of like these, you know, mini war rooms every day, kind of, um, you know, crafting things. We ultimately ended up hiring 15,000 uh, outsourced employees to focus on this, opened a bunch of outsourcing locations and real estate across the world. Uh, but it was a very just interesting time to be working on kind of one of Facebook's top priorities to kind of protect the community, their business and their reputation. Um, and then at the same time, it was just very interesting to be able to kind of, um, you know, get all of the insight of probably like one of the smartest people that I've absolutely ever met. Um, and then lastly, just kind of living through the experience. I had known at the time, like, you should remember every single day of what happens from here on out, because <laughs> like this types, these types of things don't happen all that often in your career. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a fascinating time. And um, obviously, it's still a problem. I have yeah. a lot of thoughts on how it can be fixed and can't be fixed, but yeah, definitely an interesting time. Super cool story. And I think a great example of how quickly organizations can respond if there's clear, decisive expectations from leadership. And um, I think a lot of organizations may move more slowly or, or they think they need to move slower for some reason, then, uh, they probably need to, I don't know, you know, it's like a fear of, of implications that may be unknown, maybe unknown unknowns, or maybe a fear of, um, hurting their culture or their people, or, you know, you, you see these large, like change management sort of things going on that, uh, they seem to take a long time. And, and then you see examples like that where, you know, it was literally just a <laughs> one email from one guy making a very clear, expectation of this is what I want to see and I want it to happen. And, um, I, I just think, uh, I think that's an optimization opportunity maybe for some leaders to take away that, you know, weigh the risks. And if the risks are fairly low, maybe you can move a little more quickly. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that in that example, it was very clear. We had an immediate problem. It needed to be fixed. The leader comes in and says, like, do this thing and do it quickly, right? Mm -hmm. I think that one of the biggest things that I see is um, a problem in, in larger companies is um, kind of the fear of risk taking. So if you're in a large organization and you're one of the, you know, talented, ambitious, smart people, 
you're going to go work on the, the problem or the project that has the highest pr uh, uh, probability of success. You're not going to go work on, you know, kind of the potential moonshot opportunity that can move the company forward like 10x in revenue because mm -hmm. most of those projects fail. And so if time, time after time, if you're working on the thing that has the lowest amount of uh, probability of success, but the highest return, but you fail nine times in a row, you're going to be looked at as a failure within the organization. But the guy who go, went to go work to move the company, you know, 2%, 3%, 4%, 5% top line growth, that person is looked at as one of the all-stars in the organization. So right. every smart person will say, I'm going to go work on the thing that moves 5% because I know it's going to work. Um, and it's one of the, you know, kind of failures uh, of institutions. You know, Amazon is probably one of the ones that has said, you know, we are going to go for these moonshots. We're going to make a lot of terrible bets and everything like that. And they throw the smartest people at those problems. But um, yeah, you brought just, up you know, bureaucracy and entrenched institutions that kind of, uh, you know, fail at that. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Amazon. I was going to bring that up as well. I saw Bezos interview talking about all the things that they've failed, you know, all the all the initiatives they've started or tried that have failed to get to those few that have just been extremely successful. Right. So how, how do you think we can kind of create cultures where we're not afraid of that failure? Um. So I think in large organizations, like I just don't have the expertise to really know, Um. you know, it's kind of easy for me to say the the piece about, uh, you know, you got to encourage risk taking and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, quite frankly, maybe just copying Bezos' model and saying like, I'm going to take these huge bets and I'm going to take my smartest people in the organization and throw them over there. And I know the people that are maybe like the B players can still get the 5% growth, right? But I'm going to put the A players over there. And then, you know, maybe in your kind of rating incentive bonus system, you're actually like, do, in some weird way, crafting um, a a narrative uh, or a uh, bonus system to help people, uh, you know, make money if they do fail on a project, right? Yeah. Um, but it, I don't know enough. I know in the smaller stage uh, and kind of like the earlier stage, um, you know, for us, we just spend a lot of time thinking about what are the biggest opportunities that we can go after and how can we test those ideas out very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. To a certain extent, that's how I did the multifamily thing was just to say, I'm going to de-risk this as much as possible mm -hmm. by partnering with someone. I'm going to go a little bit bigger. You know, if I fail, it kind of didn't matter. Like I can try again. I can try a new asset class. I can go sure. try single family. Maybe I was wrong about multifamily. Right. Uh, but yeah, for me, I think it's just about really about experimentation. I think you're right. I think you talked about the... Uh you know, having that, um, I guess is self-imposed constraint on your capital, for instance, you know, and the capital that might be available to make an investment. And I, th I really think that people just have, they don't have the perspective. They don't have the necessary perspective to, to really even understand the risk. And they think there's some big risk out there. Like, Oh no, you know, I, if I, if I take this real estate investment, you know, I might lose money or whatever. And, you know, maybe the worst case is you just sell the property or, you know, there's really not that much risk potential at least that's kind of what I'm finding. I don't know. Does that make any sense? Uh, yeah, to a certain extent. So I think about it like in a couple different ways, right? So from an individual perspective, uh, oftentimes, and again, I think this goes to the irrationality of fear, but you will think, you know, oh, there's all of these risks out there. If I quit my job, I'm not going to be able to pay my bills. 
And then you kind of just stop thinking at that point and you go back to your job and doing whatever you were doing. Mm -hmm. But if you think like a few levels deeper, um, then you kind of say like, okay, um, if I quit my job, what will happen? Right. So it's like, okay, uh, you know, I will not have a steady paycheck. I will, um, that's pretty much it. Actually, I will not have a steady paycheck. Uh, If you've saved money, great. Then you can say like, I have 12 months of runway. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, what, what happens if, uh, at the 12 months, I kind of run out of money. Well, um, you know, probably if I'm eight months in, I start might start getting a little bit anxious. You know, if you're talented and ambitious, you can probably find a, another job within four months, work for a year, get yourself again, 12 months of runway if you want to try this thing again. Um, so there's always kind of like a way to think, a framework to think about it to say, hey, uh, if this happens, then I will do this, right? it took me a long time to realize that. And I realized pretty much my worst case scenario was like, I just move in with my parents. I'm not going to be homeless. So like, that's pretty good. Bad, like worst case scenario, like the worst uh, thing that happens is just a shot to my ego. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how I look at like individual risk. And then I think the other kind of framework to think about risk is uh, people will give you unsolicited advice on uh, certain things that you might be going after. Uh, And I'm like the king of giving unsolicited advice, but I mean it more from the perspective of you'll come up with an idea, you go tell your friends, your family members, whatever, like, you know, oh, I'm thinking about doing this. I'm thinking about going into real estate and like buying this property, you know, as a side hustle or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they'll start saying things like, um, oh, yeah, you know, one time I had a friend that did that and, you know, it didn't work out. The tenant left, they trashed Mm -hmm. the place, whatever, whatever. And then the person is discouraged. But if you think about it, you just took advice from someone who has never done what you're trying to do. And so you always want to go, you want to tune out the people that don't have the experience and are providing advice because there's a lot of those people out there. And you want to go to the people that have done it before and kind of hear their advice and and deeply kind of reflect on what that advice is and then determine your next step. I love that advice. It's like talking to somebody who... It was like, yeah, I knew a guy that got a gym membership and, you know, he doesn't have a six pack. So gym memberships right. don't work. It's, it's like, you know, you got to find people that have done it. And I, we like to, you know, I've struggled with this. I love my family. We like to listen to people close in our circle. Right. But the, you know, the people in our circle are typically doing the same stuff we're doing. So mm-hmm. if you want to try something new and you're going to advice for people in your circle that again, like you said, haven't done the stuff that you're trying to do, why are you going to listen to their advice if they haven't done it? Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, and so that. I think a lot of it just comes down to kind of like independent thinking, being okay with being contrarian, not needing to follow the crowd, um, you know, not needing to uh, feel like, you know, whatever you're doing is not um, like looked down, like is looked down upon. Uh, for example, like, I look right now at so many businesses in, in kind of the home services um, like in industry. And so if I was a young, talented, ambitious person, and let's say I didn't want to go to college or something, let's say I didn't like tech, I didn't want to work on like a huge big idea, I would probably just go start a landscaping company. And even if I did go to college, maybe. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people would just be like, you just got a college degree. Why are you doing that? Right. But that's something that can probably make you like 400 grand a year, like in year two, maybe even yeah. before. 
Um, and so I think there's a lot of this kind of like, you know, stigmas out there and kind of like a perception from people and, oh, what will people think if I do this thing? I think you just got to do whatever you want to do and, and you'll probably figure it out. Yeah, that fear of that fear of other people's perceptions is uh, is something I know a lot of people deal with. So that's great advice. Roland, I know you're busy, man. And before we go, I want to ask you, what is your approach to leadership? And do you have any advice for people who are thinking about branching out into starting a company or in leadership roles? You know, you're you're an owner of a company right now. What would you tell to other leaders out there? And what advice would you share with them? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, for me, leadership has just been about, um, you know, kind of trusting uh, the rest of your team uh, to be able to work on things. I think when I first started, uh, I was very uncomfortable with letting go of the details, always needing to know what was going to happen. Uh, and kind of if you just hire, um, you know, talented people, then you kind of just got to trust them to, to, to do what's right. Uh, and you can kind of set up, you know, different processes to make sure you're still involved in some of the details. Um, and for the people that maybe, you know, you consider um, not to be the best employees, but uh, you don't always need the best employees. Sometimes you just need okay employees. Then you just have to make sure you tr train them right off the very beginning. So for me, it's really just been about trusting people and kind of giving the right, uh, the, tr the right training. Um, and then secondly, for me, it's just been about, kind of thinking towards the future. So um, I've been really focused on operations, tactics, what do we need to do this week? But you need to set aside time to be able to think about what is our true goal this year? How do we work backwards to get there? Uh, where do we want to be in three years? Where do we want to be in 10 years? Uh, we probably will be so much different of where we believe we'll be in 10 years, but at least let's think about that right now. So we're kind of like setting up things to get there. Um, so those are kind of the, the couple things that I, you know, uh, focus on as it relates to leadership. Um, and then, you know, advice for people that want to, um, you know, start companies and uh, become founders and stuff like that. Uh, I would just say, you know, don't get in the habit of doing a lot of analysis, um, listening to too many podcasts or reading blogs or books or anything like that because there's a, there's a huge difference between kind of what you read, what you learn, and then the actual practical implications. Um, and so, you know, spend that time, maybe figure out what you want to do. Again, really independently think on what is unique to you. It doesn't even need to your, be your passion, just like what are you good at and what makes money? And that's a good kind of synergistic view of, of things to focus on. Um, and then kind of just go do it. And you're just gonna learn by making mistakes you're going to learn by meeting other people, uh, learning from them. Um, you know, maybe you do some type of apprenticeship, something like that, but uh, definitely take action and don't spend too much time kind of just learning from resources. I love it, Rohan. Great advice. Great wisdom. If people want to find you, hear more about JT Capital, what are y'all doing at JT Capital these days and where can they find you? Um, yeah, so JT Capital, we're just continuing to acquire apartment buildings. Um, we're, our goal is to uh, acquire $250 million over the next 12 months. Uh, JTCapitalGroup.com is you know, where you can go if you're interested in learning more. Um, and then I'm on Twitter, probably the best way to find me. Um, and then outside of that, you know, I have the newsletter. You can probably find that by just going to my website, which is RohanJohar.com. Thanks for coming on GLE, my friend. Great catching up. 
Yeah, great to talk to you. All right, man. If you enjoyed today's show, give it a five-star rating. Follow, subscribe, and head on over to GoLeadEverything.com to learn more about the Go Lead Everything movement. For more great content daily, follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at RealPhilSwanson, Facebook and LinkedIn at PhilipSwanson, and for videos of these episodes and other great video content daily, subscribe to the Phil Swanson channel on YouTube. Now go 